Good to see everyone tonight. So thankful you're here. We just roll in, or I just roll back in. Been at Fayette, had a wonderful day there with the Mayfield congregation at uh, actually the Fayette City Civic Center. And so they had a number of folks who were there from various places, from Columbus and Aliceville and Pickensville and uh, Jasper and uh, Parish and other places for the fellowship that they had there. And Got to listen to a good lesson by Brother Dan McCollum uh, while we were there, and he is from, uh, from uh, Tupelo, Mississippi, and so uh, we had a, had a great, great afternoon there. I know some of you had a busy afternoon as well, driving in from uh, Lads to Leaders, and so you may be tired this evening, and you may be sleepy this evening, and so uh, if you take a nap while the sermon's going on, uh, we'll go ahead and turn the lights off, and when you wake up, you can just go ahead and get up and head out when, when you get ready. So just, uh, just make yourself at home until that takes place. As we begin our lesson tonight, you know that we are looking at questions, and the question that we have tonight that uh, we have planned, had planned for some time is, is it right to clap in worship? That's one of the ones that uh, had a lot of interest when we were doing the survey at the uh, actually before the beginning of the year and we were planning out our lessons and so we want to take some time tonight to address the matter because it has become quite common in our day for people to clap during the worship it's become quite uh, common in many places for people to clap for various things in the Lord's church and so we want to know what the Bible has to say in regard to that that's what we seek to do in answering all of the questions that we've looked at this year and we want to continue to do just that and so tonight we'll seek to answer that question in the book of Colossians chapter 3 at verse number 17, I think it would do well, or we would do well to begin there. The Bible says, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, in, uh, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. As we analyze that verse, and probably as you have heard a number of times, if you've listened to very many lessons in the Lord's church, you'll note that as we look at Colossians chapter 3 at verse number 17, we have something that is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when we're talking about doing something in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are looking at something that is to be done by His authority. As uh, an example of that, sometimes you may watch on television, hopefully no one has come to your house, but they may knock on the door and they'll say, open in the name of the law. Or they'll always say open because this is the sheriff's department or some police department. So they're using their authority. But sometimes we say that by saying that we are doing this in the name of someone. And so whatever we do, it's to be done, uh, whatever this passage is talking about, it's to be done by the authority of the Lord. But notice he says whatever you do in word. Whatever you do in word, whatever, whatever it is that we do in word uh, would have to do with our preaching, our teaching, the things that, uh, that we would teach others in order to, to believe, to uh, be able to, to do. And so everything that we teach or everything that we preach is to be taught by the authority or to be authorized, I guess would be a better way of saying it, by the Lord uh, in His word. And then he says, whatever you do in not only word, but in deed, uh, the practices that we have, the things that we actually do in worship or the things that we do in life are to be done by the authority of the Lord. He himself, in his word, 
is to authorize those things so that we'll know what to do and what not to do. And so the only way we know what the Lord authorizes is through a study of His Word. And of course, that's what we're seeking to do even tonight. In the book of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we know what the early church, the first century church did. The Bible says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayers. There are four things there that they would have done in worship. Number one, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That has to do with the, the teaching or the preaching that was done in the early church by the apostles. Uh, when we look at and we understand or think about the word fellowship, that's not a meal that they ate, but that has to do with giving. As a matter of fact, in the book of Romans chapter 15 at verse 26, the Bible uses that same word and translates it in this way, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. The word itself literally means participation, benefaction. You know, uh, you have a benefactor, someone who is a giver or a provider of something, or uh, literally a contribution. And so, to translate it in that way is a correct way of translating it. And so you know that on the Lord's Day we, uh, we give. Uh, it is a part of our worship. It's not something that we just do because we like to, to take up money or try to keep people poor or anything like that. Uh, it's because the Lord has commanded us to do that. And there are other passages that deal with that. The breaking of bread, of course, would have to do with the Lord's Supper. It's what's called a synecdoche, that is the using a part for the whole. Uh, we talk about having uh, 30 head of cattle. Well, do you have 30 heads or do you have 30 cows? And the answer to that, if you've got 30 head of cattle, you've got 30 cows. And so you're using a part for the whole. And so the breaking of bread has to do with that. And then, of course, prayers. Uh, we understand that we are to go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. When we go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, at verse 19, we read about what we are to do in singing, uh, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Colossians chapter 3, at verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to the Lord. And so... Uh, we know from these passages as well as others that we in the New Testament church are to uh, participate in the singing, the singing of hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3 at verse number 16. These are the things that God authorizes in the New Testament worship. And, and we need to be aware of that. We need to be reminded of those things. When new Christians are, are, are uh, baptized into Christ, we... We, we need them to know. When young people are growing up, we need them to know what the Bible has to say in regard to uh, what God authorizes in church. We don't want to add anything to what God has said. We don't want to take anything off, leave it off. We want to do what the Lord said. We want to do everything that we do in word or deed by the authority in the name of the Lord. And so, with this in mind tonight, we ask the question, should we clap? In worship. Should we clap in worship? Folks, we have no command authorizing clapping in the New Testament. We'll just, we'll just start out and talk about it plainly here. There's no passage that you can go to that says, okay, you can clap. And by the same token, we have no approved example of anyone clapping 
in the New Testament. No one that uh, is mentioned in regard to worship ever having done that. You say, well, maybe clapping is a modern day thing. No, clapping is mentioned in the Old Testament. And uh, the, the, the bringing together of the hands in, in the clapping motion is mentioned in the Old Testament, but nowhere in the New. And so nowhere do we have it authorized for us to do that. But now, I don't want to just stop right there. Y'all might say, well, hey, preacher, you know, we've had a long day. That's a good, place, good stopping point. Go ahead and offer the invitation. We'll all go home. But I don't want to just stop right there. I want to, I want to help us think some things through tonight as we continue on with our lesson. You know, as we think about this question, we have to ask another one, and that's simply this, why are we clapping? If we're going to clap in worship, we have to ask, why? Why am I doing that? What, what is the purpose behind it? I would say that if we were to take a poll of, uh, of people who would like to clap in, uh, in worship or who do clap in worship, uh, why they're doing that, you'd probably get uh, as your number one response something like this, because I like the speaker or because I like the message, or because I like the song leader, or I like the song. Those, those are the kinds of things that we sometimes do. You see, as we think about clapping, clapping is generally done in response to entertainment, isn't it? Isn't that in our society the general time when we, when we clap, when we applaud, is when we have been entertained, when, when a singer you know, out at a concert, when a singer sings a song, what is the response of the audience? Now, if it's a, a bad song that no one likes, they may not say anything, but generally when people go to a concert, when they pay to go to a concert, they already know what's going to be played, and so when they hear their song, what do they do? Well, they clap, they, they applaud, because they have been entertained in their life. And so, as we think about that, you know, uh, when you have those kinds of things going on, you applaud. When someone puts on a good show, people applaud. That's what our culture does. And so, as we think about current culture today, current culture has groomed and conditioned the average person in a number of ways. I mentioned Brother Dan McCollum a while ago, and and he. Uh, had, a, had a good lesson today in regard to how culture grooms or how, how it cultivates a, 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 you know, different attitudes in, in different people and, and how, it, how it cultures us, if you will, from the time that we're uh, just small. And, and he made some very good points in regard to that and in the way that we react to one another. We were talking about uh, uh, my lesson had to do with the idea of diversity and and he had, uh, his lesson had to do with showing respect to persons and things like that. And, and, and we both dealt with it, but, but he made some very good points. Culture and the way that our society acts around us and the things that we see society doing influences us to do certain things. And yet, as we look at today, our culture has, has pretty well groomed and conditioned us to, to have a... A, a very strong taste, a strong desire to constantly almost be entertained. But I would suggest to you tonight that the worship of the church is not entertainment. It's not entertainment. The church is not a period of entertainment. When we come together to worship, it's not to be entertained or to entertain anyone. Those present in worship sometimes are mistakenly thought of 
Sometimes we think of ourselves as the audience. You know, the preacher's up preaching and we're the audience. The rest of the folks who are sitting around, uh, we're the audience. Well, I have bad news for you. You got that wrong. You see, you're not the audience. God is the audience. And, And even though I'm the one standing up tonight and I'm the one talking, you are to be worshiping God as all of this is going on. By looking at the Word of God, by studying the Word of God, by understanding the Word of God, by making application into our life the Word of God. We're not the audience. We sometimes refer to the people who are present as the audience, but the audience, the true audience in worship is God. Did we not come together to to sing praise to His name? Do we not pray to Him? Are we not giving for His work? Are we not remembering Him, our, His Son, and His death when we partake of the Lord's Supper? You see, it's all about God. It's not about us. Now, we get some benefits from it. We learn. We're uplifted. We're encouraged. But we're not the audience. God Himself is the audience. And, and when it comes to innovations in the, in the Lord's church, innovations in worship, they're generally done for man rather than for God. We do those things to please ourselves. You know, we could look at, think about instruments of music. When you add those kinds of things, who does that please? I mean, did God ever say that's what he wanted? No. And so who do we do that for? Well, we do it for us. I had a lady tell me one time, this was many, many years ago, that that she was the piano player at a particular church and uh, and she said that one Sunday something was wrong with the, with the piano. And she talked about how bad the singing was that day. You know, nobody could, could stay on, on tune. Nobody could, you know, could sing along. It was, just, it was just pitiful because they had to sing a cappella on that day. You know, I thought, how, how tragic. How tragic. Sometimes we talk like that too, don't we? Singing sounds bad, and so what do we do? We, we, we just say, you know, we've got to do something about this singing. Because, you know, what the problem is? We consider ourselves the audience. We're worshiping God. And that's the point that we need to get fixed firmly in our mind. We, we are not here to, uh, for our own pleasure. Many only come to worship services, though, to be entertained. And if they're not entertained, they're not uh, made to feel good, then the problem arises that they want to find something else. And folks, we have to correct our thinking. And when we do, there won't be really any reason for applause. If singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, or listening to a sermon, or partaking of the Lord's Supper, or reading the Scripture's entertainment to you, then you probably need to take a very serious look at your spiritual life because something is amiss. Something is wrong. Perhaps you've been severely misled in the, in the things that you yourself have been taught. So worship is not entertainment. But even more than that, Jesus condemned religious theater. He condemned it. Did you realize that? Condemned religious theater. Look in Matthew chapter 6 at verse number 1. Take out your copy of God's Word and, and look at it together with me. 
In Matthew chapter 6 at verse number 1, Jesus himself said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. If we do in our worship things that are done just to please the people who are sitting in the pews, and we're seeking to get praise from them, we better enjoy it. Because that's all we're going to get. God said, you've already got your reward. Jesus said, you won't get any reward from your Father who's in heaven. But even more than that, look at verse 2. Matthew chapter 6 at verse 2. Jesus wasn't finished. He said, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Folks, it's not appropriate for us to, to try to get glory for the things that we do. And, and yet, so many in our world, that's the only reason they do some things. Sometimes the only reason corporations and, and the, the, the ones who run the corporations, the only reason they would make a big contribution to some goal or something is they, they want to be recognized. They want to keep customers. They want to, uh, they want to have a good name. But as Christians, that's not what we do. We don't do things to be seen. Look at verse 5, Matthew chapter 6 at verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. You know, I've, I, I've sat during prayers that I thought were eternal. That the brother was going to pray, you know, all night long. Now let me, let me hasten to say, there's nothing wrong with praying all night long. Jesus prayed all night long on occasions. But sometimes folks pray long, wordy prayers. And we hate to, we hate to put blame where, where it shouldn't be. But sometimes it's relatively obvious that the prayers are being said not to reach heaven, but so everybody will say how good a prayer that was. And that's not a good thing. It's not accomplishing what, what needs to be accomplished. And Jesus said, well, if you're doing that, then you've received your reward. Look at verse 16. Matthew 6, verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And so four times already we've looked at, Jesus has condemned religious theater. Why do you fast? It was a religious thing. Why do you give? It was a religious thing. Why do you pray? It was a religious thing. And Jesus says, it's not to be done for the praise of men. And so by applauding performers, we express our appreciation for their skill, for their proficiency, for their talent, 
And we're saying, congratulations, you're doing a good job. Job well done. I acknowledge your talent. That's what we're saying. And so, as we look at it then, we, we need to be careful because we don't, we're not the audience God is and, and we don't want to contribute to what Jesus has condemned in religious theater. And then somebody says, well, I'm just showing my approval. Just showing my approval. You know, I, I just want everybody to know that I agree with what is being said. In other words, that's just the modern way of saying amen. The modern way of saying amen. Listen carefully. We already have available to us a biblically approved means of showing our approval. One given in Scripture. That is literally by saying, Amen. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16. Paul wrote and said otherwise. He's talking about speaking in tongues and people not being able to, to uh, understand the things that are said. He said, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? The word amen means most certainly so be it. And so, you know, we have just an incidental statement by Paul that says, Hey, this is what is going on many times in services. People give their agreement by using the word amen. Do you realize that Jesus sometimes used the double amen? The double amen. Uh, listen to this. We, we generally don't get this if we just look at it in English and don't study, you know, a little bit. But Jesus, in the book of John, chapter 3, at verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If you were to look at that word in the original language, it literally is amen. Amen, amen. John five twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John five twenty five. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here. When the dead will hear his, uh, the voice of the Son of God. John thirteen sixteen. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And there are other occasions when Jesus uses the double amen. If you're reading from the King James Version, it says, verily, verily. Or as one brother said, verily, verily. You know, truly, truly, amen, amen. So, in a sense, then, Jesus gives his approval to, uh, to the use of the word, just as Paul had done in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 at verse 16. Can't we just be satisfied with that which, for which we have Bible authority? Can't we condition ourselves just to do that? But let's turn it around. If it's okay for me to clap when I approve, add that. Put the shoe on the other foot. What if you don't like what I'm saying? Would it be all right for you to boo? 
or to start throwing fruit. You know, that's what people do sometimes. They throw tomatoes and things like that. I don't want to have to dodge those kind of things, you know, and, and I would rather not hear boo, but if we can add one, why can't we go to the other extreme and add the other? Do you realize <clears throat> that when people do certain things, did, well, at least one example that I'll share with you tonight, when one man did certain things showing his, just to show his disapproval uh, of the people who were there, it got him into trouble. Did you realize that? In the book of Numbers, chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, the Bible says, And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the, in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. There are a lot of problems with what Moses did. Jesus points, or rather God points out here that, Hey, you didn't lift me up. You didn't, you didn't say, you didn't show your faith in me. You didn't show that you believed in me. But you struck the rock. But why? Why did Moses do that? Well, he doesn't tell us here, but we're told by inspiration one of the reasons. In Psalm 106, verses 32 and 33, the psalmist writes and says, They angered him at the waters of Meribah. That's where these things went on. And it went, all, it went ill with Moses on their account. They angered him. They angered Moses. What did he do? Well, for they made his spirit bitter and he spoke rashly with his lips. It wasn't just the striking of the stone, but him being angry, striking the stone, and also talking to these peoples, speaking to them rashly. But the Bible tells us he did that because he was angry. He didn't like it. Now, I can't say that I blame Moses. Those folks were the gripingest people sometimes that you can ever imagine by what we read in the Bible. And, and Moses, Moses was a better man than Mark because Mark probably would have got mad long before that. And I, I, I'm pretty cool, you know. I've learned to be pretty cool along the way. But they, they really, you know, they were big gripers. And they angered him. And it cost him his ability to enter the promised land. Just because he disapproved and he changed what God said. Pretty strong stuff. And so, if it's okay for us to add clapping, why can't we do this? You know, a lot of preachers might get booed a lot. I don't know. Y'all might boo me out of the building. I don't know. But guess what? We don't have authorization for that. But then let me ask you this. What about applauding baptisms? Is that something we should do? Is it okay? You know, baptism not necessarily in worship itself. But I would, I would ask you this. Is there any person on the face of the earth who deserves applause for obeying God.
Think about that one for a minute. Is there any person on earth who deserves applause for obeying God? Are we not all, every single one of us, obligated to obey God? Aren't we under obligation? Our responsibility? And so look at Luke 17, verse 10. In Luke 17, verse 10... Jesus said, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. I don't deserve applause for obeying God. I'm just doing what God said. And so that's, that's worthy of our, of our thoughts. But then there's one other thing that I want to talk about before we close our lesson, and that's this. What if someone does applaud in some place where we are? How should we react to that? How should we react? You know, we could just, uh-oh, let me go in the right direction. We could just ignore it. Just let it ride. But if we did that, then those who are doing such would never learn from what they have done, that it was not authorized by God, that it actually was wrong. And so I would suggest to you that that's not the, the right course, just to ignore it. We could go to the other extreme, couldn't we? And just storm out from wherever it is, get mad and point fingers and do those kinds of things. Because, hey, somebody did what was wrong. Excuse me. <coughs> Let me ask you this. If we have to have Bible authority for what we practice, could someone please show me a passage which says that we're to get angry and run out? In the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, there's an interesting statement to me that was made by... Jesus, as he's talking to John, he's talking about the church at Sardis, and we actually mentioned this passage this morning. But in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus said to the angel of the church at Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. What we've read so far is a church, about a church, church at Sardis, that was in grave danger. They were not doing what God wanted. And so he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and what is about to die. Thank you, sir. What is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it, repent, and if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And here's where you need to mark. Yet, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, They will walk with me in white, 
for they're worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, church at Sardis was a church in error. And yet Jesus says there are some there who are as straight as an arrow. They're still doing what's right. They haven't bowed their knee. And nowhere do I see where Jesus said they need to leave that place. They need to continue doing what's right, encouraging others to do what's right. That was the course that he prescribed for them to follow. He tells them they need to repent, they need to change. So that's probably not the right way to do it either. And then finally, there's a third option. Why not follow the example of Aquila and Priscilla? Follow the example of Aquila and Priscilla, Acts chapter 18, 25 and 26, talking about a man that we hear a lot about in the book of Acts, a man by the name of Apollos. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard it, they jumped up and they said, Hey, shut up until you get this right. Oh, let me read the Bible. I I, I missed, missed that. When they heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I would suggest that's not just an example. That's a divinely approved example. One for which we would have Bible authority to practice that. Should the need ever arise. For you see, only when we do what's authorized in Scripture are we on safe ground. Somebody says, well, I'd rather err on the side of caution. The key word is err. To err means to be mistaken, to be incorrect, to make a mistake. I'd simply ask this, which mistake is bigger in the sight of God? To do it one of the two wrong ways, or to do it at all? They're both mistakes, they're both wrong. And we'll answer for both. Again, only when we do what is authorized in Scripture are we on safe ground. As we close tonight, may we learn to find contentment and satisfaction with the simple ways God authorized in His Word. Nothing more, nothing less. Just learn ourselves to find contentment and satisfaction with pleasing God. May we love Him enough to set aside our personal preference or the things that, that, that uh, stir our emotions or, or, or cause us to, uh, to, to have pleasure in the things that, that we would like. May we love Him enough to put aside those personal things 
so that we ourselves can praise and honor and glorify and please our Lord. You see, only, only when we follow those things that are delineated in Scripture, authorized by God's Word, can we be certain that we'll be pleasing unto Him. As we close our lesson tonight, it may be that you yourself need to be a part of the Lord's church. His invitation is open to you tonight. If you believe in Jesus, are willing to repent of the sins that you have in your life, are willing to make that great confession and be baptized for the remission of your sins, we're here to assist you in whatever ways we can. It may be tonight that you need to make something amiss in your life right. And if that is the case, God's invitation is open to you right now as we stand.